Hey guys, Andrew here. Thank you for coming along on this podcast journey. Real quick, before we get started in this episode, I've got to ask you for a favor. If you would take a moment and give us a rating or a review wherever you find this podcast, that would be enormously helpful in us getting this word out and having a dialogue uh, about, about coaching inside the box with a greater number of people. Also, my challenge this week is share this podcast with one person. You may not know it, but we have a YouTube channel. And on our YouTube channel, we have a ton of really good content, small excerpts, maybe 45 seconds to a minute and a half long from our episodes, also the full-length podcast. We have a Twitter page that has a ton of these small, short, shareable content that you can hit retweet or like on your Twitter. And we have Facebook and Instagram also that you can share on your own social media platform. If you haven't found us on Facebook, search Coaching Inside the box. If you haven't found us on Twitter, search at coach in the box. If you haven't found us on Instagram, search coaching inside the box. And of course, YouTube search coaching inside the box. Thanks. And let's get started with the episode today. Coaching inside the box, a youth soccer coaching podcast, a Brit, a Brazilian and an American discuss culture and environment and the impact it has on youth development. Can you coach inside the box? Developing skill in anything is this process of self-discovery. And anyone who's ever enjoyed training is because they love, not just the game, the training. They love that process of self-discovery and of changing themselves and figuring out how that works. If you do it for a result in the future, you're not doing it. When we were kids, you used to knock on doors with your friends and say you want to play. And that's what we did. We went and played. And we learned and we got creative. Because I live in Santos, a lot of people, they think I learn in the beach. No, I, I didn't learn in the beach. I, I learn in the street. There, I think I take a lot of uh, important things for, for, for my life. When I was 10 years old, I played in a, in a minor hockey team in my hometown, Brantford, Ontario. And there was a team in, in just north of Toronto, and every tournament they beat us 3-2 or 4-3 in the final. And I remember being in the car one day, driving home from a tournament. My dad was driving. And my dad said the most incredible statement, I always remember it since I was 10 years old. He said, you know, they're a team that's better as a team than you guys are. But he said, I'll promise you one thing. There won't be one boy from that team that ever plays in the NHL because they're too structured. They play too much of a team game. The defense stay back. The left winger and right winger stay on their side. And for kids, that's not the way to play. And sure enough, there wasn't one kid on that team that made pro hockey. And we had five boys off our minor team that made the National Hockey League. There's a great study recently out of the German soccer team, just won the World Cup, looking at the development path of the guys who made the national team and the guys who were one rung below that. And the only big difference they could come up with was that the guys who made the national team played a, had a lot more time in unstructured, small-sided play when they were young, where the field might just be like an alley that wasn't normal proportions, and continued with more unstructured play into pros. That was like the main difference they could find. Hello and welcome to episode six, five, I don't know, it's been uh, many different episodes and we are so excited to have you guys today. Hopefully you guys liked that intro, it was a little bit different than what we typically do, but I must be honest, uh, Andy uncovered on Amazon Prime at some point over the last few weeks this this documentary called In Search of Greatness. Um, quickly, it was a late night text that Philippe and I got and said, you have to watch this, it is unbelievable. I think Philippe started watching it right away, responded back to the text thread maybe at like midnight. This is amazing, Andrew, you have to watch it too. Um, I was a little bit more delayed in getting uh, getting the TV turned on to it. I think it was maybe the next day before I turned it on. You've always been a bit more delayed. <laughs> but but with that said, this in search of greatness, we're we're going to talk about it. We're going to share 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 a few clips or excerpts from it. Um, but that's our plan today. We want to we want to talk about um, uh, th- this this documentary and and what we learned from it and 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 really maybe in some respects how it how it cemented or gave 
credibility to a lot of a lot of the, the thoughts and, and ideas that, that we have. Um, and so let me let me introduce In Search of Greatness a little bit to you. Um, there are a few main characters um, of this of this documentary: Jerry Rice of the San Francisco 49ers, Wayne Gretzky. Uh, Philippe referred to him as William Gretzky. I don't know that Philippe even had ever heard of the guy before uh, this podcast uh, or this uh, this documentary. But Wayne Gretzky, uh, the hockey great, um, and Pele. Pele has 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 a part through it as well. Um, and and then there's two academics, if you will, Sir Ken Robinson, um, who is an, an author and an academic that is well renowned in the world of creativity, um, and a, a fellow by the name of David Epstein, who had not seen or heard of before this documentary. Um, and they dive deep into great players and what made those players great from the words of the great players and the great players didn't so much talk about their time as professionals i think in the in the in the documentary they really talked about their youth um and so i think there's a ton for us to learn as youth soccer coaches from this this perspective um but as as we transition here right you heard you heard uh wayne gretzky say it himself right or his dad say it uh, uh and and it's that unstructured play is the way to have young kids play hockey um and then David Epstein follows it up with unstructured play was the difference maker between the top level national team German players and the rung right below it. Um, and so, Andy, is this unstructured play comment? Um, you know, how, how does it sit with you? What do you think of of unstructured play and its role in terms of developing creativity? Well, I, I'm kind of mixed, you know, and, and I, I'm mixed about the whole subject of David Epstein. He, he has a tremendous book out uh, called Range. That is very respected, you know, by you know, the Malcolm Gladwells of this world and the other authors that uh, have specialised in this area of development. Um, but uh, I'm a great believer that uh, you know unstructured play is important. But I think there's a way of structuring development so that it is magical, and it's illusionary. And, and uh, I wanted to get into this because this is really a, an interesting field. Um, it, David Copperfield, for example, you know, he's a, he's a master of creating illusions. And, you know, he's probably the world's most famous musician, uh, you know, which, you know, you know, it's arguable whether he's the world's best, not musician, magician. Um, uh, it's hell to get old, guys. Um, so, um, but uh, he, he's incredible at creating this whole scenario where you know the audience is focused on what he wants them to focus on while the trick is happening elsewhere and he does it with thousands of people so you know this is the, you know what the great dribblers do is they they create this illusion that they're going right when they're going left you know and you know you can actually practice creating illusions mm -hmm. and i think it's essential that we narrow in on the best way to beat players in a one-on-one -on -one in all the scenarios of the game so that you don't just have aimless creative play because we've all seen the kid that you know dribbles and goes nowhere mm -hmm. you know and doesn't really beat somebody leave them behind to create numbers up in attack so what we have to do is we have to find that lovely balance between you know what david copperfield does which is creating the illusion you know and the improvisational magic that is lovely to have on occasion during the game you know, but if you're too improvisational, then you're never ever, ever going to really uh, get the creation of the illusion down that has to be practiced. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. So let me throw a question to Philippe, pulling off of what you said. is, uh, Would you, in your estimation, coaching youth soccer here in the, in the United States and playing against coaches from other clubs and, and other coaching philosophies all the time, would you say that they allow their kids to be too improvisational? Um, or would you say they're too rigid? I think it's too rigid. Um, the words that I m most often hear is play the way you face, play simple, don't take risks, and that's killing the kids' creativity. A lot of people say, like, it, it doesn't matter which club or which coach uh, the special, talented kid has, uh, they will be, always be special. But I don't really believe in that. I don't think a coach can necessarily make someone that special, but you can definitely ruin a kid. Uh, if you tell a kid that has that driving side of doing what's different and improvising and just creating out of the blue, and you're telling that kid to play the way he faces or play uh, simple, don't take risks, you're killing that kid's creativity. And that's the worst you can do because after you kill that, 
it's it's hard to regain the, this is like something that people will have inside of them and you know it's hard to to install that in somebody you know but it's if you ruin it it's it's easy to ruin it so it, i think in the us it's all about winning it's all about you know, uh, showing everybody that you know, understand about the game. So the coaches, I think, are sometimes more concerning, show that they can develop a really uh, complex drill and all that, you know, to show the parents so the kids come back next year uh, instead of actually thinking in the development. The coach wants to win because, let's be honest, if you win every game in the season, the kids are going to come back. The paycheck is going to be there next year. But... Are they really developing the special players that are going to impact their high school teams or college or anything? I got, I got something I've got to interject on this. This is fantastic. Just this week, uh, I'm on Facebook and I reconnected with a, a player that played for my a Kansas ODP team in 1985, Matt Wilson. You are old. <laughs> Thanks for reminding me. Yeah. <laughs> so, so uh and uh, Matt, you know, like waxed lyrical about how, you know, I taught him some really important things. And he said, you know, I never forget you were the guy that really drummed it into my head to clear it high, wide and long. <laughs> <laughs> I swear, this week on Facebook. And, you know, and I'm t- talk about cringeworthy. I went, ouch. <laughs> I was really that coach, you know, and, and yeah, sure, you know, it, it, at a lower level of play, you know, you've got to get it out of there because nobody in your defensive, you know, your, your back four is able to play skillfully enough to actually keep possession and break the line, you know, and bring it into the midfield, you know, but can you imagine Jurgen Klopp saying, clear it high, wide and long? I mean, they, they play out of, you know, the tightest corners. Everything. Yeah. Everything is played out of the back and, you know, they're now EPL champions as of yesterday, you know, and you look at Liverpool and the way they play, they play total soccer back to front, yeah, yeah. you know, yeah. and, and I used to scream at my players, you know, clear it high, wide and long, get it out of there, you know, and, and you know, now I say to clear it is to fear it, yeah, yeah. you know, how much have I turned around and changed my mentality? Yeah, I mean, it's been enough time to give you the ability to have changed. Don't remind me. Yeah. <laughs> so, but like, let's get into this unstructured play for a moment, right? Because I, I think you both had a little bit uh, interesting perspectives, right? I, I agree with you, Philippe. I, I, I think that in the United States, our coaching culture is entirely too rigid. Um, and there is, there is a, uh, too much of a concern and a conservatism in the coaching style that pushes kids to not take risks. Um, but to that same end, Andy, I agree with you also when you say that, that um, um, so often when coaches start to push the kids to be creative in a session, maybe like just saying, hey, we're going to just free play play, they're pushing the kids to try rainbows and really, really, really difficult skills that either one aren't very deceptive or don't translate well to the actual game or two are um, uh, are so difficult they're not likely to be successful and so there is there is a middle there but I think most of the most coaches almost all coaches I think are entirely too rigid and then a coach occasionally maybe they hear a podcast that inspires them to have a creative practice and then the kids do a bunch of flicks and tricks and and, and to be blunt, crap that isn't going to translate well to soccer. And not very many coaches, I think, in our culture actually hit it where it needs to hit, right in the middle. And, and let, me, let me talk about structure, you know, in this context is, is, you know, what we're talking about is not just wild and crazy anarchy, you know, in practice, you know. So there has to be some structure. And one of the best ways of illustrating how structure is so important is literally all of the world's greatest players come from, as it says in In Search of Greatness, come from small-sided games, you know, surrounded by walls, you know, these little, tight, fast play-in areas. So that's structure. So we've got to find a way to structure, you know, the environment as well as what we do in the environment so that we get the best of all worlds from our environment, from our content, from our coaching philosophy, you know, as well as prepare kids for life, you know, to deal with, you know, reality, which is that in reality, there's a lot of structure. 
but the, the ones that make it to the top in a genre are the ones that think outside the box and find a way to work within that structure to engineer something original. Yeah, and, and, and I, I think that's, that's part of the, this, an ongoing theme we've been talking about maybe every episode in this podcast so far is that, is that you know, Ashington, they created the structure, but they didn't intend to do it for football. They intended to do it for a mining community, but it created the structure that until cars ended up in the roads was perfect incubator for creative, tight, fast play, right? Um, and, and, and in the United States, we've done the opposite, right? We talked about this before. We spent $36 million on Overland Park Soccer Complex that creates these gorgeous, giant fields that is not the structure that's going to create, right? Well-rounded, creative, attack-minded players, which just so happens to be what we don't have in the United States. Except Pulisic scored a fantastic goal yesterday, didn't he? Um, yeah, but uh, it was all speed. You know, there was there, his his change of pace to beat the defender at the very end was 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 fantastic. But you're right, and he grew up in Germany. No, he didn't. <laughs> yeah, he did. No, nah, he, he, he went to Germany. He went to Germany in his middle teens. Yeah, you yeah. know, he, he grew up in Pennsylvania. Yeah. You know, but but uh, you know, the one thing that about that run that was exceptional was the finish inside of the post. Fantastic. You know, just in off the post, yeah. and you know, I mean, that was slide rule stuff. It was perfect. Yeah. You know, but. Uh, Let's be honest, those Manchester City defenders should be shot. <laughs> I mean, to take them out at dawn and, you know, put them out of their misery. I mean, what, were, what were an they, absolute... Were they Brazilian? <laughs> oh, don't even get me started. So it was funny because the guy who made the PK for City was Brazilian. The keeper was Brazilian. And the guy who took the PK, William, was Brazilian as well. So the three involved in playing Brazilian in England. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. That's um, how much... How many players we export to Europe? <laughs> so, but carrying on, right? Um, uh, in in this unstructured play, let's talk U.S. soccer for a moment, right? U.S. soccer put out an initiative a handful of years ago that was this play, practice, play uh, perspective, right? When kids show up to to the training session, you should do some type of play scenario in the session and then you should practice and then you should finish with play um and like i I love the idea that play was said twice in that session but let's be honest i think in practice most american coaches maybe do a little bit of play at the beginning but then they get really structured during the middle of the session it becomes obvious that that structured middle section of uh, of training is is the part that the coach cares about most, and then and then they let him play at the end where the coach isn't so much engaged, right? And 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 when we talked last, I think it was last episode about one v ones and the way that we do that, our entire session is play. It we structure it from a one v one perspective that that it hits a lot of touches and and players playing the entire time, but it's entirely unstructured from a perspective of creativity can go anywhere. Kids can take the ball and go any direction they want and they have to assess all of the different variables that are taking place within the session. Um, and, and again, I think U.S. soccer is trying to do it right, but there's still miles from, from, from getting it organized the right way. Absolutely, absolutely. And one of the things that, um, you know, we talk about providing structure and um, in our facility here in Kansas City, you know, the one we're in, as well as the other ones we've got on the other side of town, uh, we've got these boxes, you know, and these boxes, you know, we've got 70 of them in this facility that we're actually recording in, you know, and, you know, it, it's the most crazy shooting scenario you, you can ever imagine. So here's that combination of improvisation, you know, and just getting in there and you know, smacking on the ball, you know, and structure because we've structured it so that, you know, dropping and bouncing balls are about 60% of the, the opportunities here. So same ratios as in the outdoor penalty area. So it's very scientifically structured. Um, but the repetition factor is off of the charts, you know, and the ability to read what's happening to the flight of a ball, whether there's spin on it, you know, these things are developed at a far greater rate because of this four-walled, eight-foot soccer box that we've got that forces kids to handle chaotic, complex scenarios involving the ball. And be creative in the way that they hit the ball. And, and a perfect example is, the, and talking about the evolution that you as a coach have made, right, to the kids you coach now com- compared to coaching me in the 90s. In the 90s, we played a ton of wall ball where it'd be me and a teammate and we'd smash it against a, a wall and it would come back to us. But every shot we took, one was off of a, on a second touch, off of a preparation touch. And every shot we also took was off the floor. And there's a great clip that, Philippe, you edit into a lot of the club promotional materials, which is Holly, Andy's 
youngest daughter um, uh, playing box soccer and she hits a ball that's bouncing and she literally jumps in the air to ensure that her left foot gets over top the ball to put it onto the front wall. And that's a perfect illustration of one, her being creative to get the ball back onto the front wall or to the, to the goal as quickly as possible. And two, it's really, it's re it's really uh, apt, right? Because oftentimes in the box, when the ball's bouncing around in there, you've got to be a bit creative and, and getting your foot, maybe even jumping a bit to get your foot over top of the ball and put it in the back of the net. And we didn't get an opportunity to train that at all as kids, you know, 25 years ago. Right, right. Yeah. So, um, so let's talk about sports science, Andy. There was a, uh, um, uh, a Ken Robinson quote you quoted earlier. Um, uh, Ken Robinson from, from the documentary, if the stats come to dominate your judgment, you don't have any judgment at all. And there was a, there was a whole period in the, in the documentary where they really kind of dug into sports science, right? And somebody said something along the lines of, like, sports science makes something important because it can be measured. It's not important because it actually is important, right? There are cases where we've become entirely too slavish uh, to sports science and, and, and not measuring things that, that – and, and, and considering things that are – considering things important that we can measure whether they're actually important or not. And, and they talk about uh, um, uh, Tom Brady as a perfect example, right? In the, in, the, in the draft combine before he was picked, he was the slowest, had the worst arm strength. All of the measurables that they had to determine what level to pick him on um, were, were wrong. Um, and, and they mentioned Garincha too. Uh, so talk about Garincha for a moment, Philippe. Yeah. Educate us. Yeah, a bunch of people in Brazil uh, that are as old as Andy uh, talk about Garincha <laughs> being uh, <laughs> even better than Pelé, some of them would say. Um, but certainly people say that after Pelé or right on his level, he's the best of all time. Um, Garincha had a disability, like he had one knee going out and the other one going in. So his legs were completely like weird, like he shouldn't be even able to walk. And he ended up winning two World Cups for Brazil and, you know, in numerous uh, national titles for Botafogo. And he was just amazing. And he had a disability. He wasn't the fastest. He was actually an alcoholic. He smoked like he was a complete non-athlete so he wouldn't match up anybody in the fitness part in the speed in the strength but he for his time he was the first like extremely skillful he did crazy things with the ball things that players do now nowadays he was the one that invented and he his best play was like he would stop and he would just like do a step over to the side and come back step over to the side and come back it was a slower game at the time but like People knew what he was doing, but they couldn't stop it. He would always go to his right. He didn't use his left for anything. He always go to his right, and nobody could stop him. So he, because of his disabilities, he was like, I need to be skillful. I need to be different. And he developed uh, that. So if you only get uh, stuck thinking about the athleticism and this kind of stats, the science behind it, we fail in incorporating the creativity, the leadership, because being a great player means being a good teammate, being a good captain, being making your teammates better players, making the team play better. So uh, stats and science measure to f um, fail to measure all that. So, and it's and those things, those other things that I, that I think we would all argue is what makes the great players. Exactly, great. that's the it's, difference maker. Yeah, it's 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 the um, the the looking at a. a a typical scenario and seeing something different you know and seeing the, the possibilities within the scenario and and you know there's for example a, a lot of really successful people uh, were born with dyslexia you know and you know they couldn't dyslexia for those people that don't know is when you can't make sense of words you know because the letters are jumbled you know when you look at them and so those people can't you know, read books like normal people and can't learn from books like normal people. So they have to look at problems just in the reality, you know, as, as they are in life, because they can't read their way through a problem. They can't understand an instruction manual. And one of the best things I ever heard about dyslexia is that the very word itself, you know, which, you know, implies a negative for people that have the disease or the, or the challenge, you know, it, it, it actually is attached to one of the most pleasurable experiences in life 
Because if you rearrange the letters, you know, it spells sex daily. And, and I, I mean, that's a great thing, right? You know, that's, we, we all aspire to that. So, so if, here we are looking at this word. And if we are dyslexic, we can actually see it, you know, in a very positive light. You know, so so let, you know, let's remember that and let's get out of our boxes and realize that obvi- obviously in, in some of the most negative scenarios are some of the most great, great positives. Sure. If we look for them. Yeah. Uh, that's Malcolm Gladwell, David, David versus Goliath, right? Like yeah, his absolutely. entire book was, everybody thinks that David was this great underdog, but it's actually the things that, the, the tools that David had because he was quote unquote an underdog that made him an absolute overdog in the competition against, against Goliath. Um, and just to add up on the Gorincha side, I have a funny story. Um, actually, I heard that from my grandfather. Can, uh, I, can I interject here? Because yeah. I think Gorincha had a form of dyslexia, didn't he? But I think it was the other form, you know, the sex daily form. <laughs> from <what I> <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, he, was a, he was a party boy. Uh, but he actually, they found him playing like just Sunday league, like pickup soccer in his town. Um, and then... They took him to Rio, and they took him to Vasco first. And they didn't let him practice. They didn't let him train. They looked at his legs and like, what is this guy doing here? Don't, let's not waste time. Like, get, get him out of here. And then he went to Botafogo, and they, they were like, all right, sure, let, let's see what he got. And then, like, he just got the ball in practice and, like, dribbled around everybody in circles. And then they say, and you never know these things are true, but they say he dribbled the whole team, dribbled past the keeper, stopped the ball in the line and walked away he was like i'm done i don't need to do anything else i'm done i don't need to <laughs> so it's just like that anyway and it was kind of a joke and it was that, that kind of player that he was and that's the whole brazilian dna is like soccer for us is a joke is a it's it's an expression of fun improvisation you know and i think when we again focus on the science part and try to measure everything some things cannot be measured you can a goal that you score in a World Cup final in a tough moment, or a goal that Maradona scored in that World Cup against uh, England when uh, they were f- uh, in war for the Falcon Islands and all that. Like that has a really heavy weight, much more than you know an, a regular goal they score. So the stats cannot be measured the same because there there are difference in everything. So. So let, let me take us, let's take us back to in the environment, really. And I think environment and, and structuring of environment is, is really something that I think all three of us are really passionate about. And we think, we've said before on this podcast that we think the structuring of environment is the most important element. And it's not even close in terms of developing or, or, or creating players, creating creative players. Um, and David Epstein says something um, in his book, and I'm not quoting him in this documentary, and I'm not quoting him exactly, but something along the lines of, we need, if we're really going to be effective in creating creativity, um, we need to create environments that force children to learn things without articulating what they are learning. And he uses language as an example, right? When, When kids are young, they learn to speak English, if they in the United States, most likely, um, because um, uh, without them knowing that they're learning English, and and Andy can they're not learning English. It's 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 a bastard <laughs> form of you know, the language. It's, you it's, invented it's American. it. We perfected it's, it. Yeah, come on. Uh, so um, <laughs> so, but let, let's it's talk. just like what Brazil did to soccer. They invented it and we, we perfected, perfected it. it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, uh, let me read this though, that, that you know, because this is really important. Gretzky's dad flooded a small hockey rink in their backyard. This is from In Search of Greatness, uh, when it was cold enough so that Wayne and his brothers could play hockey right outside their back door. This is a quote from the documentary. Gretzky says, if it wasn't for my dad, I would never have made it. He made me the player that I was. He was smart enough to realize that for whatever reason, I had a gift, and he pushed that gift to another level. You know, And that's one of the things I found with most great players, there was somebody in their life that made it happen you know somebody in a club a parent you know there was a role model that took it to a whole different level that gave the kid the benefit the magic of a vision and the kid loved it and bought in which obviously has to happen as well you know so it's not just the environment it's it's somebody that triggers that passion you know, a, a responsible parent that finds out where the best coaching, creative coaching is being done in the city, you know, to really get the juices flowing in any sport. That's vital. 
You look at the Serena and, and Venus Williams phenomenon. Without their dad, they wouldn't have been the superstars that they were. Would Tiger Woods have been as famous as he was if it hadn't been for Earl? You know, I mean, you know, and the list goes on and on and on, you know, how there's a role model in somebody's life that becomes great. There's always that special role model. And, and, and like, I think about parents that I know who kids that I, that of kids that I coach, right? Like it's, it's not just as simple as being really passionate about, about a sport of being passionate about soccer in our case and, and impressing upon the kids that, that, that passion and painting that vision. It's being, it's, it's seeing, seeing past, seeing, seeing the forest of the trees, right? Seeing past it. And so for Wayne, he talks about how, and I think the quote that we, we started at the top of the show was great. Like Wayne talks about, like my dad said, right? That team is not going to have any NHL players because they're entirely too structured. And I, I can't remember I finished it because that's not the way kids should learn to play. And so Wayne's dad got it. But I think most parents, sadly, because we as a, as a soccer coaching culture don't educate them otherwise, most parents assume, okay, my kid's kind of skillful or whatever, right? I need to go find the most successful team I can so that they can become a better player. And Wayne's dad saw that that wasn't the case. Uh, and they were better served to be on a less successful team because it, it, it forced Wayne to play a, a, a better style of hockey that would suit him for a longer period of time. Well, it comes down to what, what is the definition of success? Yeah. You know, and, you know, is success the team that wins or is success the team that challenges each and every player on the roster to get out of the box and grow to a greater extent every game? You know, I can take my fast players and I can tell my defenders, you know, you play your position, you win the ball and you dump it long to, you know, this kid that can break away and, and he'll score a goal or two or three a game. And, you know, we can be tough on defense and keep the other team down to zero or one goal a game. And we win virtually every game and then we can beat ourselves, you know, on the chest and we can gather around the water cooler on Monday morning and say, you know, my kid won this league or won this championship. And that's not the path of the greatest players. You know, we don't hear about how their, their kids' teams won championships when they were younger. We, we more hear about the Wayne Gretzky scenario where their team did not win the championship when they were younger and they ended up being a much better player because their coaches encouraged them to take risks that lost them games. You know, and, and, and on that point, right, before I come to you, Philippe, to that point, I think a, a really good example we see oftentimes is, 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 is coaches that use rondos or use numbers up scenarios and they train a team to be really good at playing the way they face or taking minimal amount of, of, of risk. And they can move the ball all about the pitch, right? So I used to love like the St. Louis environment, the teams that we played against. I was like, oh yeah, they're going to play sideways and backwards for 80 minutes and they'll steal a goal at some point in it. And they might have most of the possession, but their players are limited in their ability because they never think past what's the simple, safest option so, here. So let, let's use an example from yesterday's game, you know, Chelsea versus Manchester City. Chelsea were playing this great first-time passing situation and they went left and they went right and they went, you know, 10 yards forward and 10 yards back and left and right again, you know, and they kept doing it. And I thought, this is some impressive first-time passing. But then the piece in, inside of me that knows said, but they're not penetrated. And then Pulisic got the ball. This wasn't when he scored. This was an, he got the ball and he went right out of defender, beat him, and he went right into the heart of the defense and he lost the ball. But Pulisic was going to make the goal happen. The rest of the players were just playing pretty to work around the edge. Mm -hmm. you know? And that's what Pulisic does. He goes for the jugular and he's a valuable player. You, think, you look at him, you think he's a little weedy, he's a little weak compared to some other players, but he's got that mentality of, I am going to go for it. I'm going to make it happen. It's that mentality. That's the difference for him. The first time I saw him play live was a U.S. men's national team several years ago in Florida. And I noticed that every touch he took was forward. Every time he got the ball, he went forward, right? And so often the players at that level, especially the first game that they get, right, or the first few games they get with the national team, everything's safe. Sideways, backwards, sideways, backwards. And so we as coaches, how do we create a mentality in kids where when they get the ball, they go for it? And and it, and I think I think our club does a, a phenomenal job, as good a job as I've seen, better job than anybody I've seen do it, because we require kids to go relentlessly forward, no retreat, right? And we tell kids, you have to make mistakes. You have to make mistakes. You have to make mistakes. Don't pass it sideways or backwards. Take somebody on or a penetrating pass forward, and that's the difference. 
Um, Andy, earlier you said you brought up the definition of success. What is success? Um, I asked you as a coach uh, that has been coaching for, I don't know, 30 years, um, what's more fulfilling to you to see, to win a state cup uh, champion with your team or to see, I don't know, five of your kids with really good uh, D1 scholarships and playing college, potentially playing pro, what's more fulfilling to you? Seeing that you develop players that went to the next level or you and that team winning a state cup? And, and it's interesting you bring this up because I just got done with a training session, you know, before this podcast. And I was chatting with, uh, you know, one of my players who's got a D1 scholarship. Uh, and, and we were talking about, you know, her as a player. And, uh, you know, I, I actually thought that she was somewhat lazy and I was completely mistaken. She wasn't somewhat lazy. She was also playing premier basketball at the same time she was playing soccer And she was worried that if she, she um, allowed either coach you know, to have the knowledge that she was playing another high-level premier sport, that you know, the one or other of the coaches, me or the basketball coach, would, would bring the hammer down. And, and, you know, and it was quite funny because um, I was doing some research online and I, you know, I was, and I looked her up online and I came up with her on these basketball rosters. And so the next time that she was at practice, I brought, took her to one side and I said, Ash, you know, I see you're on a basketball team and she colored up. She was all embarrassed mm. and I'm really sorry, I should have told you. And I said, oh, yeah, you should have told me, but not because you were thinking that, you know, I'd be upset. But all this time I've been thinking that you were a little bit lazy and, you know, you've come into practice dog tired because you've been playing two high level sports. And I said, I've got great respect for people that make their own choices, you know, and they don't follow in the direction that coaches force them in. And I said, I would have completely backed up your desire to play two sports because you've got to play your own music in this life, you know. And, you know, she eventually quit the basketball and focused in on soccer. And, you know, and uh, today she walked into my practice having done her pre-college workouts because she's going there in the fall absolutely bright red in the face but then she jumped on the field and she was the hardest worker on the field having been out and run five miles before she even came to my practice you know and and so you know this this is how sometimes we miss the wood for the trees because we can't force kids to play you know the way we want them to play and I think other coaches in other clubs they play this we were talking about it Ashley said that um you know she um She, with a high school coach, it's very structured. And she said, you know, you know I mean, I, I love playing high school, but it's very much like watching the grass grow, you know. And so, um, you know, she doesn't enjoy the practices, you know, with other, other teams. And she loves our practices because they are so absolutely wacko, you know, that anything can happen. And you're allowed to, you know, just do anything improvisational, you know, and it's extremely hard. And she said, I don't get a fitness workout in the other practices, you know, and the end to end, you know, three on three, two on two, one on one stuff we do here. It's such a great fitness workout. And I and practice goes in a heartbeat, you know, and she just got done telling me that. Well, we've got to do more of this. We've got to make it more fun because it's play. It's not structured to the degree that we take all the fun out of it. Yeah. And, you know, I think players leave other programs in droves, you know, and, you know, I, I've coached two teams that all the way through came through and, you know, and these players have stuck and played the game. We get almost no wastage from our program. They stay with the game. Some move on to other clubs from time to time, but they stay with the game because we've built a passion and a love because of the way we play the game, because it, it triggers their creativity. They're allowed to be them, mm -hmm. uniquely them, because we're all different, you know, instead of being asked to be this robotic something else. You know, does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And, and the structure thing, I remember university soccer for me. Um, and we, our, our training sessions oftentimes were really, really, really structured, right? We'd have all these grids and cones and we'd be playing essentially a, a, a scrimmage, a small-sided scrimmage. But I had certain zones I had to stay in and I couldn't go into that zone. And, and like for me as a player, it became a thinking about all these things rather than just playing. And even the sessions when, when my, our, our coaches were, were trying to give us the opportunity to be as creative as possible, 
possible, like our 1v1 tournament sessions. They created a bunch of grids and there was just me and the guy I was competing against in the grid, right? And it was, it even had way too much structure associated with it comparative to the legend sessions I was in growing up where we played 1v1s and everybody was on the same pitch, right? And we had and, to account for everything. And to add to your point, I think in 2002, Brazil made a terrible mistake. They should have kept Roberto Carlos and Cafu in their zones. <laughs> they should have absolutely not allowed them to go forward, you know, not allowed them to overload and, and, and you know, yeah, yeah. what do you think? I think you're completely wrong. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let me... So let me hold on, hold on. Okay. Roberto Carlos and Cafu, what type of player were they? A lot of people listening to this won't really know. They were wingers that played as outside backs, pretty much. Like, they went forward every single time. It's but not just, just wide forward. You just, see clips of them coming you, inside forward. You see, you see clips of Roberto Carlos going to the right so he could cut in. It's just like Brazil, the successful Brazils always had like a few special players and they were, they were free to do whatever they wanted. And then you'd have three or four guys that were the role players that would, their job was to facilitate for these guys. Yeah. And then... When Roberto Carlos went all the way to the right and left the left back and their opposite team right winger, someone else would go there and cover it for him, you know? How, so how, that's come, how come when I say facilitate, it doesn't sound as sexy as when you say it? <laughs> There's a lot of reasons for that, Andy. Uh, but, but, I mean, I remember playing for you when you would get on, it must have been after you watched Brazil play, you get on this kick where most of what you talked about in our games, this is, we were probably 15, 16, somewhere in there, was lose your shape, lose your shape, lose your shape. Soon, like literally, guys, get out of your position, go somewhere else, right? And just completely lose the shape. And if we do that, the, the defense is going to have no ability to keep up with us. And I'll be very honest, me as a player, I, I saw that transition to my game because I always played left winger and I used to be always wide, waiting for the ball wide and doing everything that the left wing does. And I would get the ball, play to the forward and keep running wide and stuff. But then I started realizing like I, I played small side of play my whole life. I moved around the field everywhere, dribbled around, you know. So I started like forgetting the coach's instruction and like cut in, move, go to the right, go to the middle, like play the forward, make pretend that I'm gonna go wide and go to the middle. Like just like creating like a chaos in a sense of the tactical part. But like it's a chaos for us, but it's a chaos for the other team too. They they don't know what what's happening. You break out their structure. So when you when a team breaks their own structure, they're also bring, breaking the other team's structure, and that's what makes a difference. If everything is so structured, you know, there's actually it's funny. There's a Simpsons um, episode that they make fun of soccer because you know America's favorite sports are really high scoring games, and soccer is not. And they, the clip is uh, kickoff, and they play the ball to one side, play the ball to the other side, play the ball to the other side, play the ball to the other side. And the crowd is like cheering in the beginning, and then they were like so bored because nothing <laughs> happens. And if soccer is so structured, that's literally exactly how it looks it like. Uh, so let's go back to defense wins games. Because this <laughs> offensive shape, and, you know, and it was brought into my prelim license when I did it, my intermediate badge in the Welsh FA. Uh, you know, my, my various licenses, you know, the, the B license, the A license that, that I took with the USSF, uh, my advanced national diploma. Every coach that, that coached us in tactics talked about offensive shape. This is like defense wins games. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there, there's no such there thing. There should be no shape for There offense. should be no shape for offense because shape is predictable. You know, and, and what you want is you want to be unpredictable. You want to be out of the box. You want to be hitting them from places that they never expect. You know, and, you know, and this is what's just crazy is that, you know, it's like in the First World War, that, you know, at, at the Somme, the, the, the British Army lost 22,000, I think it was, casualties in one day because they went over the top and they just kept sending people over the top to wallow through no man's land into the mouth of machine guns. And so they had this shape that was totally predictable. They didn't try and outflank people. They didn't try and do anything by surprise. You know, it was just the weight of death that was going to cause a, a massive victory in the eyes of the generals of the British forces. And of course, the British forces got massacred. You know, the worst defeat ever in British history, you know, military defeat. You know, and so this, this shape thing is a complete 
you know, boondoggle. You know, we have to destroy shape in our offense in order to completely, you know, confuse and dominate the defense. You know, and it, <laughs> Roberto Carlos, I remember when I was watching the game one time and the commentator was doing his nut. He, he shouldn't be over there. He was playing right wing. Why is he over there? You know, this is crazy. The Brazilians, they're nuts, you know. This guy's playing right wing and he's a left fullback. You know, yeah, but he's Roberto Carlos. <laughs> he can get inside and he can have bomb from 30 yards and he's done it many times. You know, and, and so, you know, this is what makes great people great is they improvise. They do things other people can't do or won't do, you know, and therefore they develop this ability to be a brave creative leader for life. You know, and when our soccer career is over, what are you left with? You're not left with soccer because it's over. You're left with what that person taught you about taking risks, about being adventurous, about being a brave creative leader. Well, isn't that far more important than a stupid game? Yeah. I love this game, but it's still only a stupid game. You know, make sense? It, it does, and this is a fantastic uh, transition or segue to, to what I wanted to show. We're gonna, I'm going to take them to a, a clip from the documentary with Ken Robinson, and Ken Robinson specifically talking about how our educational system right, is, is, is entirely too standardized and way too structured, and it kills creativity for kids. So uh, listen in, and we'll chat about it afterward. All inventive and creative people, they're not hung up on fixed definitions of what any form of life or reality may be. When it comes to coaching and teaching and this pressure for conformity, um, is the, the assumption that there is a formula that you can follow and if you just get the formula right, uh, if it's a great formula, you will be great. Well, this is easier. Yeah, we can handle this, OK? The system itself is based on conformity and compliance and standardization. And if we know anything about people, they are diverse, creative, and want fulfillment and meaning, not drudgery and a kind of dreary, repetitive sort of existence. So if you promote conformity, don't be surprised if that's what you get. And I, um, I love that thought process, right? He, he, Sir, Sir Ken Robinson, I first heard of him from TED Talks, right? I, like 20 years ago, he did a TED Talk that went viral um, on the, the, what is entirely wrong with our education system. It all has to do with how we try to standardize everything and get everybody, all of our students to fit inside of a box. And, um, and maybe, maybe it's that environment that's made it to where dyslexics are so um, are so otherworldly exceptional when 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 they figured out because they have to be creative to fit within our really creative boxed conformed education environment and 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 but what if right what if everybody didn't have to fit into a box what if our education environment our coaching environment was different Um, and and I I think that's I think that's a really important key that we as soccer coaches and I mean soccer coaches as in the community of soccer coaches throughout the entire world, United States, whatever, right? If we became way less standardized and way less um, uh, conforming to norms as to what our sessions should look like and what our players should look like, we could be so much more successful in helping kids to become much better soccer players and much better people, as you said, Andy. Yeah, bingo, bingo. And and it's just incredible how much the environment you are raised in influences your worldview you know and and you know you're familiar with you know my background but being raised in in oxford england in a university famous university city and parents owning a boarding house i i got to hear the theories from all over the world of incredibly intelligent people around you know the the breakfast and dinner table i got to play chess daily for hours with people that were extremely good chess players and you know ended up beating the oxford university chess captain you know while we were in hospital together without ever realizing how good i was at the game because that was the environment i was brought up in and you know and and honestly i got super 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 lucky 
you know, with that environment. And had I been born and brought up in uh, one of my friend's houses with, you know, parents that, you know, went down the pub and drunk all night long and, you know, and didn't pay them any attention, you know, and, you know, not having those people to discuss religion, you know, politics, sex, all those things with, you know, over the, you know, a breakfast or a dinner, you know, not having those alternative viewpoints and not having people to play chess with, and also, you know, not having a soccer field literally right outside my back door because my house backed onto the local park, you know, and I had the only ball in the neighborhood, so kids came over and wanted to play with me just for the ball, not for me, you know, obviously. And, uh, you know, and if I hadn't had those things just fall into my lap, then it's kind of like the, the you know, Bobby Charlton, Jack Charlton, Jimmy Armfield who grew up in Ashington. If they hadn't grown up in Ashington, England wouldn't have won the World Cup. So there's so much fate but now we've got to look at, you know, what it was that created Bobby and Jack Charlton's ability to win a World Cup with England, you know, and also win, you know, Player of the Year awards and Jimmy Armfield. What was it that made that possible? And we've, we are tasked with turning around this mentality that all these people have out here about winning to have people recognize that all they've got to do is create the right environment in order to develop winners. You know, winners aren't about winning necessarily in terms of the statistic. If you're going to create winners, we have to create all these opportunities that will make these kids competitive, creative, hardworking, incredibly skillful, out-of-the-box thinkers, you know, and that's our responsibility if we're going to eventually, of course, win a World Cup with the USA. But most importantly, win the game of life. Have returned the USA to be in this internationally respected you know body that the rest of the world thinks is a is a leader mm-hmm. it's in, and that's ebbing away massively at this moment in time the rest of the world looks at the usa as kind of like this unfortunate you know diseased you know country that you know is, is kind of regra- regarded as yes you were a shining light for the world you know you helped defeat the nazis you know and now it's looked as as a bit of a joke you know, and we've got to return the USA to this world-leading position, but we've got to get our soccer on the men's side to this world-leading position. The women are great because they, they've had the good fortune to be ahead of the rest of the world. Yeah, people are catching up, though. People are catching people up. People are catching up. But the men's game has never caught up with the rest of the world because over here we're too scientific, we're too structured, and we want to win so badly that we're losing badly. And we're losing badly as a country now on, on the world leadership scene, not just soccer, you know, but we're losing badly in soccer because you know, we want to win too much. We, we want to win the team game, right? And, and yes. the team game is the, is the wrong game. Ken Robinson, in this documentary, again, guys, if we haven't stressed enough, go find this on Amazon Prime. It is phenomenal. It's the best 71 minutes of, of, of TV you'll watch in a long time. But Ken Robinson said, human achievement is often seen as an achievement in the external, external world, but it's only made possible by achievement in the internal world. We are a species that lives on ideas, imagination, and creativity. And so often, we as soccer coaches focus on the team instead of the individual. And our focus should entirely be on the individual, not a bit of focus on the team. And if we do that, we'll be more successful in, in the way we should determine success, which is kids, kids becoming better soccer players and leaders in life um, than we were before. Um, and we'd be more successful in the eyes of the parents because their kids will be more successful individually, which is ultimately what parents really care about. Um, so so uh, uh, I gotta interject. Just this morning, I was chatting with a girl that has, has literally been in our individual training programs since she was early single digits, like, you know, four or five years of age. She's never played with a Legends team. You know, she still comes to you know, as many practices with my team as, as my players. And, and I was chatting with her and, you know, and I showed her her stats from, from the, the day and she did really well statistically because, you know, I keep all the stats that I need to back up my, my theories, you know, and so she did really well statistically. But, you know, I was sitting there with a number of players that have already got their college scholarships and they're not as good athletes as she is, you know, and here's the difference between her without a college scholarship and the players that had actually played for me through the years is when it came to game time, I said to my players, do more, do more. 
Do more. Take people on. Do more. Be that player that dominates the opponent. Do more. Don't ever do less. You know, spread your leadership wings and put your abilities that you show us in practice into the game situation. And she played for other coaches all the way through and in structured programs. And she's gotten into the habit of doing less. So she's not as confident. She's got the skills. She's got a fantastic shot. You know, she's got the techniques, but she does not put them into the game. So she doesn't jump out of the crowd into the little black book of the college coach because she's doing less, not more. You know, she's intimidated by the scenario. And that's the direct responsibility of other coaches that are not saying to that player, you've got to take people on. You've got to use that skill. You've got to use that speed. You've got to go for it. You've got to take shots from 30 yards. The amount of times I've had kids shoot from 30, 35, 40 yards you know, and the ball trickles to the goalkeeper. And I say, it's great attitude, great effort. I want to see you do that again and again and again. And people look at me sideways. And there wasn't a chance of scoring. You know, it didn't have any power. It didn't get there. Yes, maybe she'll never score from 40 yards, but she will score from 25. She will score from 20. And there's lots of kids that won't even shoot from 20, 25 yards because they've never been encouraged to fail. You've got to make failure totally not just acceptable. You've got to make it mandatory. The goal. Yeah, absolutely. And these other coaches, they want to win so badly, they don't make failure mandatory. It's because they focus on the results of the process. It's not even acceptable. Yeah, yeah. It's vilified. You know, you are made to look like an absolute goat. And I don't mean greatest of all time. You know, a goat if you fail. You know, sorry to jump in on you, Philippe, but I had to make that No, point. no worries, no worries. No, I was going to add that the documentary talk about, people are talking about standardizing everything. And the documentary talks about Rocky Marciano and how his reach was too short. And he developed, because of that, and that's the power of the environment, he developed a completely new way of boxing and like staying really close, staying uh, below the, the opponent and like kind of uppercutting. Um, so imagine if his boxing training was completely standardized and he was trained the same way as the guys that had twice as much reach as he did. He would never made it and he was probably the best or one of the best uh, boxers of all time never lost a fight uh, I think it was, he had they said they had he had like 49 wins yeah, yeah, yeah. and like 43 knockouts which is unbelievable for a guy that again just like Arincha he wasn't made for that sport but he adapted so whenever we standardize everything you're you're certainly sacrificing someone's ability to find their own way to do it better and, so, so and what has US soccer done They've tried to standardize everything. 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 Yeah. And they want everybody coaching. Killing creativity in the process. Killing creativity in the process. So yeah. in, the, in the documentary, it talks about Muhammad Ali, and it shows how he was a different type of boxer. You know, he was the guy that, you know, that was able to almost to predict where the punches were, and he had such great reactions you know, that he could just move his upper body and flow with the punches, and nobody could tag him with a punch because of his incredible ability to read a punch. And this is kind of an interesting subject because... Um, my great, 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 however many great grandfathers was actually the, the heavyweight boxing champion of England. And he was only a middleweight. His name was Daniel Mendoza. Look him up. He's written a book. And Daniel Mendoza, um, in the days of the sluggers, was a scientific boxer. He would get in and he would, you know, throw a punch, get out, throw a punch, get out. And he would exhaust his opponents, but he was very technical. So he'd wear them down and punch them enough that eventually they'd be a, a bloody mess and he wouldn't get tagged himself. You know, and he ended up being a, an out-of-the-box um, thinker and coach. He opened his own boxing school uh, on Savile Row in London and coached the aristocracy you know, to, to box. You know, and, and so you know, it's, it's these people that think outside of the box, that see a new way of solving the problem, that end up being you know, really successful in something that you would think they could never be successful in. Rocky Marciano, Daniel Mendoza, you know, and we need to empower people that are less physically capable. You know, this myth about, you know, if you take the greatest athletes and make them soccer players, we'll have a great team. It's a complete myth. We've got enough good athletes in the United States. I mean, we're 335 million population in this country. You know, we've got plenty of athletes playing soccer, you know, and we just need to train them to be creative so that in that final third, we can beat players and score goals. You know, we can carve out a goal where somebody thinks a goal is impossible. 
because we're training them to be creative instead of training them to play the way they're facing, you know, doing rondos, numbers up stuff all the time. We've got to literally go one against two, you know, and we've got to teach the player to beat two players and, you know, and get the great assist or score the great goal. And only then will you consistently win a World Cup or be a brave, creative leader for life, which is the most important thing. Yeah, 100%. Uh, guys, uh, thank you. This was a fun episode. Uh, those listening at home, please find us on Amazon Prime. Uh, in search of greatness, it'll be a fantastic hour and change. Um, and last but not least, uh, don't forget the homework for you listeners at home. Share. Share, share our YouTube video, share our um, uh, Facebook posts with the small clips, share our Twitter posts, share. Please let, let us help us uh, get the word out so that more coaches can find us. Um, and last but not least, if there's anything we can do for you, if you have a question, if we could provide you with some, some uh, perspective, um, we have an absolute ton of resources from Coaching Perspective. Um, we've got Andy's written a, a, a book. He's written a few books. Um, we'd be happy to share those with you as well. So please reach out to us on any of our socials or send us. Let me add one thing. We also have a documentary that we produced about the history of our club. And it's not quite as long as the In Search of Greatness. It's about 32 minutes long. It's it's called Legends for Life. Uh, It's a documentary about the history of our club. And if you watch that documentary and In Search of Greatness, you're going to see a lot of similarities, which is basically all we talk about. And that's why we wanted to talk about In Search of Greatness, because it really... um, it's really close to what we believe and what we do here uh, as a club. And that documentary that we produced um, telling the history of our club really, really uh, is really similar to that, the In Search of Greatness. So I think that's a, a great um, thing for you guys to, to watch as well. So Yeah, absolutely. Thanks again, guys. Andy, Philippe. Thanks, uh, guys. Next You're time. welcome. Been a lot of fun.